I invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to John chapter 15. John 15, we're going to read the verses 1 through 8 together. John chapter 15, the verses 1 through 8. These are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So far. Now we turn to Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. I'm going to read the verses 16 through 26 together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another.
Our text this morning is the verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you ever feel inadequate in your life? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Seems like other moms are busy cooking organic food for their families and sewing their own clothing. But... You, on the other hand, are happy just to get through the day without having your toddler pour milk all over the dog. Or maybe you're at work, you've been working for a number of years, and everyone around you is moving on with their life and their career, but you seem to be stuck in the same place. Maybe your friends are all getting married and starting families. You're the last person in your group of friends who's still single, And you think, when will it be my turn? What's wrong with me? Or maybe you're plagued by a a persistent sense that you just cannot get on top of things in your life. You think, other people can do it. Why can't I? What is wrong with me? You get this pervasive sense of failure. Or maybe you feel like things are going okay in your personal life, but your spiritual life is a mess. Your relationship with your family is not great. Prayer is difficult. It feels forced. You're not always consistent. And so when you read a list like the fruit of the Spirit that we read today, you, you agree with it in principle. You know that these things work. You know that It must be true for other people, but you cannot seem to make it work for you. You have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And that makes you feel like a failure as well. But you came here this morning. You're here now. You heard this text. It is is easy to misunderstand It's easy to read this text as another list of things that you're bad at. But that's not what this is about. If that's how you've read this list, you've missed the gospel this morning. Because the fruit of the Spirit is not meant as a checklist. It is meant, as all of Scripture is, in its entirety to point us to the saving work of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And when you look at it from that perspective, this is actually a very encouraging passage because it shows us what God is doing in us 
we'll see that the Spirit produces the fruit that the law cannot produce. And we'll pay attention to two points. First, that the law reveals the nature of God to you. And second, that the fruit reveals the nature of God in you. So the law reveals the nature of God to you. The fruit reveals the nature of God in you. And so we'll consider the law first. And that makes us think about the country that we live in. One of the advantages of living in a democracy is that you collectively decide how you are governed. Here in Australia, we regularly have elections which determine which party governs. And you also have a say in some of the laws. You might have heard about the upcoming referendum for something called The Voice. In a referendum, you get to influence whether or not certain proposed changes in the Constitution become law. So in a democracy, you actually have a say over the laws that govern you. And God's law is very different from that. It is different because it has not come about by popular vote. His law, in the sense of his moral law, is, is an expression of his will for our lives, and it can never be changed or altered. Nothing can be added to it or subtracted from it because it is a reflection of his character. God does not change, therefore his law does not either. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And there is no part of our lives that is exempt from his law. There is no area in our existence that falls outside of it. Now, from an outside perspective, that might seem restrictive. And if you're visiting here and you're new to church or listening in, maybe, you, you, might, you might listen to this and it might sound terrible. But this can also be understood as a sign of God's, a sign of great privilege to us. It's a sign of great privilege to have God's law because apart from God's self-revelation, we could not know who he is. Scripture says that by nature, all people are sinners. They're dead in their transgressions and sins, separated from God's grace, having no hope and without God in the world. That is why it was such a great privilege for mere human beings to receive the law of the living God and Psalm 147 remarks that he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. There's this sense of privilege in there. God did not need to reveal himself to anyone, but he did. He revealed himself to the nation of Israel. He called them his own. He said, you are mine, and then he gave them his law. And even today, having the law of God is a great privilege. But it is also our condemnation. Although the form of the law has changed since Old Testament times, the essence has not. God still calls us to live up to his law. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter reminds us of that when he says, As he who called you is holy, so you are to be holy in all of your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Holy in all of your conduct. There's only one man who ever lived up to that. And that was our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why knowing God's law both privileges us and condemns us. 
It is a privilege to receive God's law. It condemns us when we try to live up to it. And that is why you can only ever value God's law when you know Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, God's law will only ever condemn you. It will only ever reveal your failure and your shortcomings. But when you know God as he reveals himself through Jesus Christ, that changes everything. Then the law is not primarily something that condemns you. Then it becomes a catalog of everything that Christ has done on our behalf. He showed us God as the lawmaker, but also as the great law keeper. He shows us God as the one who exposes our sinfulness, but then also atones for our sins. And that totally changes how you look at the law. Christ atoned for our sins by his perfect law keeping. Scripture says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So now when the law of God confronts us with our sins and our failures and our imperfections and our shortcomings, we turn to God for forgiveness in Jesus' name. We rely on his perfect law-keeping. And then God's law does not condemn us anymore. Then we are already righteous in his eyes. And then he says to us, as he did this very morning, I am the Lord your God, just as much as he did to his people in the past. Just as much as he brought his people out of slavery in the past, slavery to the Pharaoh, slavery in Egypt, he brings us out of slavery to sin and Satan today. He has done that through Jesus Christ. In Christ, he did something that the law could never do. God's law is perfect in every respect. But there's one thing it cannot do. It cannot change us. The law is weakened by the flesh. The flesh, in that sense, is our sinful nature. And the Apostle Paul writes about that in the 8th chapter of his, his letter to the Romans. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, listen carefully, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When you turn away from your own efforts to be right in God's eyes, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness, then all the requirements of the law are fulfilled in you. Then God regards you, as the Catechism puts it so beautifully, as if you never had nor committed any sin. I think about that. If you are united to Christ in faith, then at this very moment, God does not look at your failure. He does not look at your imperfections. He does not look at your shortcomings. He doesn't look at your sins. 
He regards you as if he never had nor committed any sin. And that makes us look at life differently. Ultimately, our life is not about us. It's about Christ. He's the vine. We're just the branches. As we saw previously in in the past months, we we need to read that in light of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament Israel vineyard prophecies. There's this thread running through Scripture of, of God who has a people for himself, a vineyard, and he's looking for fruit, and it isn't coming about. And then Christ comes as the fulfillment of that. He is the vine the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And God's true people are now those who are joined to Christ in faith. Then they're part of his vineyard, and only then can they produce fruit. That's also why Paul writes at the end of this list in Galatians, in verse 23, he says, against such things there is no law. What does he mean? He means that the fruit of the Spirit does not fall within the law's prohibitions or the law's condemnations. It is something that appears by totally different means. We are actually, through faith, organically connected to Christ. Every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that. Where through faith we are organically connected to Christ and only then can the fruit of the Spirit grow in us. It is not produced by the law. See, the law can describe. The law can tell us what the fruit should look like. The law certainly tells us what the absence of fruit looks like and condemns that. But the law can never make the fruit grow. Only Christ can do that through His Spirit. And what that means is that believers are the only ones who can display the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Unbelievers are unconverted by definition. They don't have God's Spirit in them. They are not able to produce this fruit. Now, please don't misunderstand that. We're not saying that unbelievers have no good qualities. There are many unbelievers who are exceptionally kind, generous, gracious. Maybe, maybe you know them from work. Maybe you have them living beside you. There are some really kind people out there. We're not saying that only Christians are, are kind, generous, and so on. In fact, sometimes unbelievers can put us to shame. And that just goes to show how much growth there still needs to be in our lives. But no matter how good their qualities are, these are not the fruit of the Spirit, and therefore they can never be pleasing in the eyes of God. Because only the Spirit can produce a fruit that originates in the life of Christ. And listen carefully. Anything that is not in Christ is outside of him. Anything that is outside of Christ and outside of his redemption is under God's wrath and will one day be destroyed. That's what Scripture says. 
Only the Spirit produces a fruit that the law cannot produce. We've seen how the law reveals the nature of God to you. Let's also see how the fruit reveals the nature of God in you. And one thing we've noticed about the works of the flesh, and again this morning, was that this list is chaotic. We saw when we looked at them more closely that, that the works of the flesh fall into four categories, but these categories are lopsided. This list is deformed. It's like they run through each other in this tangled, jumbled mess, these works of the flesh. And, and then you get the fruit of the Spirit, and it's much more structured. There's a, a beautiful, elegant precision to it. It's a reflection of the order and beauty of this fruit. Nine virtues, often divided into three clusters, although they do run into each other. Three clusters of, of this one fruit growing because of the life of Christ in us, mediated through the Holy Spirit. So let's look together at these clusters of fruit. Let's look at this fruit of the Spirit. The first cluster is love, joy, peace. And it begins with love. You could say that love is the source of all of the other virtues. This kind of love, the, the word translated here as love, is, is a love that is very warm. People who are motivated by this love care for others, not just specifically, not just generally, but but specifically the people that they encounter in their day-to-day life. It's the first of the virtues and a very, really the fundamental one. There's no such thing, there can be no such thing as a Christian who does not love. Some music channels on YouTube have lots of warm comments on them, and they can give you a fuzzy feeling sometimes. I noticed that again this, this past week because I like to listen to Music when I work sometimes, um, classical music usually. And um, you get these compilations of music, and they often have comments underneath. And so, um, one comment that I read the other day read as follows quote, I wish everyone who clicked on this video the most love, peace, and abundance. You're so much closer than you realize. I love you. End quote. Which is a, a really nice thought, and, you know, people will respond to that and put in happy emoticons and stuff like that, but how can you love someone that you don't know? It's actually ludicrous if you think about it. Love demands an object, someone that you can love. How can you love someone that you don't know? You put these words into the void. And this is different from the love that is the fruit of the Spirit. The love that is the fruit of the Spirit is a love that regards people as individuals, not as an example of their class. This is a problem that we have today, isn't it, in society? If you look at the um, kind of social discourse that, that people have, so many people regard others in terms, merely in terms of their social class. When you talk to people, you're not judged on the basis of who you are as an individual, but on the basis of what group you belong to. You're seen in that category, that group. And then those categories are subdivided into, vict- into oppressors and victims. And if you belong to, to one particular category, say the victim category, you will always be a victim no matter what your accomplishments are in life. And if you're in, in the oppressor category, you will always be an oppressor no matter what you have done. 
And these categories are based on seemingly arbitrary concepts, often to do with skin color, gender, that type of thing. And, and that way of looking at people as examples of their class can seem loving. You know, people talk as if they, they're the ones that have an eye for the victim, for the underdog, but it's actually not love. True love, true biblical love is interested in people as individuals. It wants to know them as individuals. It wants to know their lives, their, their triumphs and failures as individuals, not just as someone who's an example of a category. And that requires you to talk to people like that. And this love is more than friendship. It is love for other human beings. So that's love. The second virtue is joy. Also quite fascinating that, that this one comes so early in the list. Joy was something that, that was uh, lacking in the heathen religion of Paul's time. Greco-Roman religion was, was profoundly pessimistic. And if you read the Greco-Roman myths and legends, you often get this, this sense of tragedy. And if there's success, it's never long-term. You don't find this word translated as joy very often outside of biblical literature. And, and when they do use the word joy, it's not that different from, the, from their idea of pleasure. And we have the same problem today. You look to unbelievers and what brings them joy is often, often confused with things that bring pleasure. But true joy is something different. Biblically speaking, true joy is connected actually to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He made that connection himself in John 16, verse 22, when he said, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So this joy is connected to the resurrection. It's based on the hope that the resurrection brings into our lives. Therefore, it does not depend on circumstances. In fact, it can even grow under very difficult circumstances. Paul writes about that in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 when he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. He's writing to these brand new Christians, these Thessalonians, and he's saying, Look, your faith came at a cost. You, you were afflicted. You received the gospel under very difficult circumstances, but precisely because you were so full of joy from receiving the gospel, despite your circumstances, you were an example to everyone. That's true joy. That comes from the gospel. And it's a lot more than, than pleasure or being in a good mood. And the third virtue is peace. Another one of these um, loaded terms in uh, Greco-Roman culture, peace meant the absence of war. Peace is when you have no problems. And maybe we share in that heathen thinking sometimes, right? You even have that in expressions, no news is good news. No news is good news. Peace is the absence of war. But biblical peace means to be reconciled with God. And for that reason, it's, it's often in Paul's greetings when he, when he writes his letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it, everything else he says is premised on this peace. And when you have peace with God, then you also 
that starts to bear fruit in your life, and then you, you want to have peace with your neighbor. So we get to the second cluster of fruit, patience, often, often translated as, as long-suffering. To be long-suffering, the idea is that you have a, a long fuse. We talk about short-fused people. Well, a long-suffering person has a long fuse. It's hard to set them off. They, they're able to put up with a lot from other people. And out of love, not grudgingly. Maybe some of you have family members who really test you. And um, that can be a problem when you're older, but it can also be a problem when you're growing up, right? Maybe our um, youth have a sibling that you just have a hard time getting along with. They get on your nerves. They're so annoying. They provoke you. Long-suffering is patient with them, very patient, and it's hard to do. And sometimes we confuse that with bottling up our feelings. And we think, well, long-suffering means that you put a lid on it and another lid and another lid and another lid, and one day, if you do that, one day it suddenly blows. That's not being long-suffering. That's just repressing your true feelings. That's frustration. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. It can be very difficult to put up with others sometimes, but think about everything that God has to put up with from us. Who is more long-suffering than God? And it's not just long-suffering for the purpose of being long-suffering. There's a reason for that. In Romans 2 verse 4, Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's forbearance, His patience, is meant to lead us to repentance. And so in our lives as well, some of that, that purposeful patience of God is meant to be reflected. Then you get to kindness. Kindness is, uh, the idea behind this word is that you are helpful to others, good-hearted towards them. And, of course, God is the ultimate example of that. His kindness is not sporadic or unreliable. It is basic to his being. He is kind not out of weakness but out of love. No one is more kind than God. It's a very moving thought to contemplate the kindness of God, the generosity of God. And because kindness is a, a characteristic of God, it is also a fruit of the Spirit that is meant to grow in us. That's why in Colossians 3 verse 12 we're told to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, listen for it, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That applies to all of us. And here again, I, I want to just draw the attention of our school-aged little brothers and sisters to this. The fruit of the Spirit is not something just for adults. This is for you, too. Because it's hard sometimes when you're in, in a school setting with, with other kids to, to be kind. But kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And the Lord calls us to show that fruit in our lives. He makes it grow. Just like the next fruit, goodness. Goodness. If you had to define goodness... What would you say to the um, Greco-Roman, the heathen Greco-Roman culture of the time? They, they thought of goodness as this abstract value, this philosophical idea that you can discuss. And we, we do it sometimes too. 
We apply the word goodness to all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with God. And yet God is the ultimate exemplar of goodness. The Lord Jesus once said that no one is good. Think about that. No one is good but God. And we can see that because he's revealed himself to us in Christ and then his goodness becomes the measuring stick for everything else that we call good. Everything that we do then is meant to reflect God's goodness. And in that way, it is a fruit of the Spirit. There's a sense of extravagance, this largesse, generosity in his goodness. Think about how good God is to us, how he gives us time He gives us energy. He gives us health. He gives us strength. He gives us opportunities. He he gives us so many things that we don't deserve. He makes his rain, his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Consider the great goodness of God. And if we're his children, should that fruit then not be reflected in our lives as well? Now the third cluster of fruit begins with faithfulness. To be faithful in this sense is to be reliable, to be someone that you can count on. It's the opposite of being flaky. And you could apply this in many places in life. You want to be a friend that others can count on. You want to be a colleague, for example, who shows up on time. Don't say that you'll be there and then show up 15 minutes late. But if you're married, this applies to your marriage as well. Not just in the obvious category of marital faithfulness, which tends to be the big one that we pay careful attention to, but also in all of the lesser details. Be someone your spouse can count on. Don't make a promise and then forget it. Then you get the eighth virtue, gentleness. The word translated here as gentleness is is, um, actually maybe not what you think. Gentleness is someone, someone who's gentle in this way is someone who is not impressed with his or her own importance. One area where you see this is a customer service, right? If you've ever worked a frontline job, customer service, or if you've worked as a waiter or a waitress, then you've probably encountered people that, that are full of themselves. They come in there and they demand better service than what they got. They think highly of themselves. If they're kept waiting too long, they become angry. And then you cop it. But where does that anger come from? It comes from a, ultimately from an inflated view of self. It's really a, a first commandment issue. Gentleness is someone, someone who's gentle is not impressed with their own importance. And by the way, if you want to apply this fruit of the Spirit in your own life, the most obvious place to start is with your family. It's funny how we can be so gentle towards others and no one would ever suspect a thing. But then we go home and we talk to our spouse and to our children in ways that we would never dare to talk to anyone else. And it goes to show how how we really view ourselves. What someone is at home tells you the most about their heart. And often it shows that we're so proud and that the works of the flesh are so deeply rooted in our lives and that the Spirit has to do so much still in order to produce His fruit in us. Then we get to the last fruit, self-control, which is connected again to that one. The root of this word is, is a word that means power in the sense of 
Lordship or dominion. So someone who is self-controlled is someone who has power over himself or herself. To have power over yourself. You're not carried off by your own emotions. You're self-controlled. And the opposite of self-control is actually weakness. People that are chronically angry are often, often raging in, a, in an effort to establish control over someone else or over their circumstances. But really, it shows a profound weakness because they can't even control themselves. They can't even control their own anger, let alone the situation that they're in. And the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, a self-control that can only ever grow out of submission to the Spirit. That's why the only true anger management can come out of faith, out of conversion, out of repentance, out of submission to the Spirit, so that His fruit can grow in our lives. So that's the fruit of the Spirit. What did you feel when you looked at this list? Did you feel a sense of failure? But how are you looking at it? If you look at this list as an example of what God's law demands from you, then yes. Then it represents your failure. Then you and I both have many ways in which we got this wrong. But if you see this list as fruit, then it represents a process. And God is at work in our lives. His gospel works in our lives. He prunes us. He brings us to faith. We are already pure. That's what Jesus said in our reading from John 15, verse 3. You are already pure because of the word that I've spoken to you. And after that, his word continues to work in us, highlighting areas where we need to grow, turning us away from everything, cutting off everything that does not produce fruit in our lives. The growth of fruit is what's most important in the life of a Christian. Those of us who are parents should remember that. Dear parents, what are you looking for in your children? Because we, we love our children. We want them to succeed. We want them to excel. And then it's easy to compare them to others, maybe even to each other. It's a really toxic thing to do, to compare kids to each other in a family. It's the worst thing you can do for your children. And we compare them on the basis of academics, accomplishments, athletic ability, and so on. Well, maybe your child is socially awkward. Maybe they're not all that accomplished. Maybe they're fearful. But how they deal with that, and more importantly, how you help them to deal with that, can bring out the fruit of the Spirit. And so, is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of your children? What about our youth? What are you looking for in a marriage partner? Some of you are engaged. Some of you are headed in that direction. Are you, are you looking for physical beauty? It won't be around long. It will only go downhill. If you marry someone for their looks and there's no, no spiritual depth, I can tell you right now, you will have an unhappy marriage. You will, unhappy in ways that you couldn't possibly begin to imagine right now. But those who embody the fruit of the Spirit become beautiful over time in a much deeper way, a much more attractive way. And that's what keeps 
a Christian couple happy together with each other as they grow older because they, they begin to cherish this fruit more and more and they see it in each other's lives. It's a beautiful thing. So you see, the Christian faith by nature is optimistic. It is true that we all struggle with failures and shortcomings and we all have particular sins in our lives that we need to overcome. But we no longer focus on those because that is not what our life is about. That represents points in time. But a child of God as a branch on the vine is always in a process of growing, always in a process of being pruned. You do not make yourself grow. You do not prune yourself. You abide in Christ through faith and you are filled with his spirit. You are pruned by his word and you respond to his providence with ever-increasing maturity. And when you fail, you continue to turn to him in faith. And that is why it is not helpful for a Christian to say, I am such a failure, because you're focusing on only one point in your life. You're, you're a work in progress, a branch on the vine. Look for the fruit. Cherish it when it grows. That brings joy. Joy because now you have the Spirit of God in you, because His priorities become your priorities and you can see them taking shape. And, and the Lord doesn't look just at, at these little moments in our life. He's looking at the big picture. He's working in our life over the process of decades. So the focus is not on failure in the moment, but on long-term growth. And ironically, that will make you turn away from failure faster than anything else. You start to hate fruitlessness when you become tuned into this fruit, you, you hate fruitlessness. You, you start to pursue things that bear fruit. You submit yourself to the pruning of the great vine dresser. And you pray differently then too. You pray for the growth of fruit in your life and the rest of the vine. You will pray that God will be glorified with much fruit. And that is a prayer that God will always answer. They'll always answer that. Pray for that fruit then. And watch it grow. Amen.